Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. And, you know, when you've got an obligation to, to, ident- to identify, escalate and rectify compliance issues under Section 108A, and to promptly identify those problems, establish room, rules, and then to remediate affected members, and that's, you know, the bottom line of it, and do nothing, it just strikes me as, are you actually acting in the best interests of your members? Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Sasha. I'm the editor at the Australian Compliance Institute. And today we have with us our CEO, Naomi Burley, and our regulatory expert back to help shed some light on some interesting cases, Carol Ferguson. Welcome back, Carol. Thank you very much, Kwame. <laughs> So today we're going to have a a chat a little bit around a case that we saw earlier this month, and it's really the action that the Australian Securities Investments Commission has taken against Australian super. And I I guess this discussion will go back into just looking at the the obligations around superannuation trustees in this space. So, Carol, take it away. What what are some of the big elements here? Okay, the Australian super case, I think, is is, um, salutary reading for everyone. So can I actually urge everyone to have a look at the media release, 23-249MR, and its attachments to it, so the concise statement, which is a downloaded, it's attached to it. Australian Super, as everyone knows, and hopefully, is the largest superannuation fund in Australia. So it's a a fund which is actually active in the market and encouraging um, investments from Australians. And... And it's one that one would expect the highest standards of compliance to be operating within. Because if they don't get it right, what chance do the smaller players have? So between July 2013 and March 23, approximately 90,000 Australian super members were affected by having duplicate superannuation accounts. And the total cost to members was approximately $69 million. That amount was fees and particularly insurance policies, which were deducted from each particular account. It's, in 2013, the CIS Act was amended to provide in Section 108A that a superannuation entity had to set out a procedure to identify and merge multiple accounts of members in accordance with Section 108A of the CIS Act efficiently identify, escalate and rectify any ongoing failures and remediate affected members, promptly identify and merge those accounts and do all things necessary to ensure its financial services were provided efficiently, honestly and fairly and to exercise the same degree of care, skill and diligence as a prudent superannuation trustee would have exercised and performed its services and duties in the best interests of members. So ASIC is now able to bring joint proceedings with APRA, and this is the first of those. It's it's possibly a case that may have not come to the public domain had it just been an APRA case that may just have been dealt with under APRA, under, under prudential guidelines or, or chats. But this was a case that ASIC thought was sufficiently egregious that it needed to be its first case in the joint regulatory domain between itself and APRA. And it also came as a result of the ASIC action to to review joint and multiple superannuation accounts 
which is 23-175MR. And that was a review which came out in June 23. When you go through the case, the facts of the case as a compliance person, it may somewhat astound you. And some of the biggest issues that come from it is that it was an early identification to the CEO and very senior members of, of the, the organisation in February 2018. And following that meeting, one of them said, maybe the first step is to fix this appalling problem. So, that, so identified in 2018 as an appalling problem, and you would have thought that it would have been then moved on as, as a matter of urgency. However, that didn't happen. And in 2018, so the meeting of the senior executives was in, in um, April 2018, but it wasn't until November of 2018 that a compliance analyst sent a, um, a document saying that, you know, the, the current processes didn't meet the CIS requirements. And you would have thought that that would have been enough of a, of a warning bell that somebody would have gone, gosh, we've got to move on it. So finally, in 2019, February 2019, it was reviewed and put into the potential breach as um, a breach incident, but it was assessed as not being a breach. And, and that is, you know, in ASIC's view, and, and I have to agree with them, that this was incorrect. So then the analyst ga um, gamely went on, obviously concerned about this decision-making, and then referred a matter to both the head of governance and the company secretary and, and said that, you know, great attraction needed to be taken on it. So in June 2018, so we're moving along, so it's over a year now, the 108 obligations were added to their obligation library but no controls were implemented. In August 2019, you know, there was some more work on it, but it still didn't happen. And then between August 2019 and November 21, little work was done by them to investigate and resolve it or otherwise to ensure it complied with Section 108A. And it was partly, you know, um, one of the lead players said the delay was as a result of time and priorities. With the greatest of respect, a major compliance error has to be within your priorities, and the fact that it didn't come within that is interesting in itself. So finally, in, two, in September 2019, a further review was undertaken, and the head of service delivery sent to the October executive meeting um, a, an analysis of what was going on, and and then some, some steps were taken to finally get the thing underway. So between March and September 2020, the, there was a dual account campaign and merge project, but that was, that was put on hold because of COVID-19. It was interesting that it was put on hold when people were still working from home and for quite a long period of time. However, we can give them, you know, a get out of jail free on that one, but not for the period of time that went on before. So it just seems that um, the 108A obligation had no controls requiring periodic attestation of clients and that of compliance, and that was not inserted until February 2022. So even, you know, when you allow an, a reasonable period of time, 
It's gone from 2018 when it's been identified as a major issue until 2022, February of 2022. And that's effectively four years without any effective action being taken. So, you know, finally, um, they lodged some breach reports with ASIC in both December 21, June 22 and August 22 and also December 22. And ASIC obviously was not happy, I think is the best way of putting it. Their assertions are reasonable in the circumstances. They say there's been an inordinate delay and, you know, four years to, to deal with a very serious compliance issue is inordinate delay. The breach reporting processes had clearly broken down the chain of command within the organisation in relation to compliance issues, from my perspective, it has some grave concerns. And the fact that, you know, you have an analyst, a junior analyst, feeling that the need to, to contact the head of governance and the company secretary about compliance issues is incredibly unusual. Um, and But they didn't take it to a whistleblower, which I think is... In to, you know, I don't know if it's to their credit or maybe they just gave up, but you've got a situation where during all of this period of time, 90,000 of the members were sitting there having their accounts being, being incorrectly debited in amounts that they shouldn't have. And so yeah. the process was much longer and to remediate much harder than what it should be. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's, um, you know, I, I would agree with you given that uh, length of time, even with COVID in the intervening periods, it, that's a really long time to be working with this when it's apparent that from the description, it looks as though some of the core compliance parts of parts of the framework simply weren't implemented. Yeah. And, you know, when you've got an obligation to, to, ident- to identify, escalate and rectify compliance issues under Section 108A, and to promptly identify those problems, establish rules, and then to remediate affected members. And that's, you know, the bottom line of it. And do nothing. It just strikes me as, are you actually acting in the best interests of your members? And and clearly that this is a failure when 90,000 of the members have not been acted in in their best interests. And for a considerable period of time. I mean, we're not Mm. talking one or two minutes. We're not, yeah. This is a, a, the equivalence of a unit pricing error, which has persisted for four years. Now, can any of you imagine having a unit pricing error that has persisted for four years? In my experience, no, but, you know, it can be, I suppose, and in some circumstances it could be if it's discovered four years after the unit pricing. Discovered late, yes, yes. But and not- again, I, I mean, step, stepping back from this, the, the learnings from this for me, for other organisations, is one, I think there's a real cultural piece here, both for being able to escalate an issue, any staff member being able to escalate that, as you've pointed out. It's an analyst, which on paper is a relatively junior position. Did they have a head of compliance to report to? I mean, we're not aware of the structure. But it also speaks to me around not necessarily a value of the culture of compliance or potentially poor understanding from the board about what actually constitutes a compliance activity, a core compliance requirement yeah. or activity. Look, it did go through the, the head of compliance when it was put onto the, the potential breaches register. But the, 
the head of compliance rejected it as being a breach. I mean, how is that possible? You know, when you've got nine, I mean, when you look at any analysis of what a, a major breach or a systemic breach is, 90,000 affected members is equivalent to a systemic breach. And yeah. for the period of time, if you look at the, the, the factors, how many members, how much money, and for what period of time, it fails on all of those particular criteria. And so, therefore, you know, you cannot understand how it, it just went on and on and on. And especially since the um, business people themselves identified it as being a problem, where was compliance pushing this along as a matter of priority? Where were they saying, this is so serious, we've got to ensure that we're there? Were they at the table? Were they actually pressing the CEO and, you know, the the um, head of legal to make certain that these documents were being I, I think this is where this goes back to, and, you know, I will harp on this and Kwame will say, not again. Is the compliance person appropriately qualified to identify that breach and understand what yeah. that is? Are they even listening to our podcast? Because seriously, we've covered this. Yeah. But also, you know, aside from identifying that out, what, what can we pull from this? that it's not documented anywhere in their controls and escalation process, that if this and this and this happens, you need to push it up the line, no ifs or buts, and yeah. it goes straight to, and then the board understands that. If the, as you say, the business is identifying that, then some training has happened in line one. Yeah. So it's unusual for the disconnect to happen in compliance, but just the same, I would venture to say that then that process is not documented out, which it should be in a compliance management yeah. system. I think in this case it was a failure in the compliance in line one to report adequately and to liaise in an appropriate way with line two. And and that then, as, as Naomi says, comes to the cultural issue of is line two trying to get along a little better? with the executive than the line one people. So the line one people may have been in a in a environment where obviously there was somebody who was thinking this was a major issue. But if line two aren't aren't progressing it, it's a very difficult scenario yeah. to take. And look, the, the evidence mounts up in the way you describe it. And, and again, I would encourage everyone to read it for themselves and, and pull out the things. These are some of the red flags. If a project is put on hold around merging accounts, for instance, one would have thought that that didn't actually require the physical presence of staff to coordinate that. That's a bit of a technological and data analysis issue. You know, how many of accounts we've got with this person with the same date of birth? Let's start figuring this out. Yes, exactly. So it's a process rather than requiring the physical presence. And I, you know, I understand having participated with members during the COVID period, in some instances, verifying the identification of customers who they might have lost contact with was tricky. Very But true. there would have then been evidence in this case of what was preventing an issue with that customer being finalised as opposed to 70,000 of them, which may have been fairly simple yeah. to identify and merge. And it shows also that the relationship between Australian Super and ASIC was not functioning well. I mean, the fact that, you know, there was no discussion with ASIC about this particular problem and to say to them at the beginning of the COVID times, well, you know, this is a major issue for us. We're progressing it, but because of COVID, we're not able to do the system changes that are necessary. However, we want you to know that we've got this underway. And so we're going to send out to all of our members a small amount of money by way of 
interim compensation and that a further amount will be sent out once it's all resolved may have been a way to have re to have sorted it out Ad because you know, yeah. they know how much a super, uh, an insurance policy is worth so could have put you know a um, a refund to each of those people. Well, yeah, I, I would have to say also that the insurance policy attached to superannuation accounts was flagged, what, 2017, 2018? Yeah. So that, that is definitely something that, that um, I think everyone can take away with is, you know, make sure you've done your governance over all of these products and all of these processes. And this is something we see with other organisations. The... 90% completion of the implementation of a project. Yes. But if you find that the project has stopped 50%, again, a red flag for me if I was if I was walking into that organisation. I'd be interested in hearing whether you think there are implications here because I had the question yesterday, um, so the implications about how we will see the landscape change radically when FAR comes in in terms of um, enforcement action because I had the question yesterday is any has there been any enforcement action under bear and my response was not it's not really APRA's style they no. can't go after the individual even though no. they were looking after bear yeah. they've never really done it but yeah. it's definitely ASIC style and look I, I am confident that with the current chair um, there will be significant action taken by um, ASIC in this space they have tooled themselves up with some very good litigators, and they have a, have sufficient resources in the in the regulatory toolbox to, in terms of finances to be able to take this on. ASIC in the past hadn't enough money in in its litigation um, box to be able to do everything. They've got a lot more money, and mm. because of that, they're able to take these matters on. And there's also significant pressure from from Parliament to do yeah, this. the labor make it effective. is absolutely hot to trot on ensuring that ASIC does its job and this this is this is the real legacy we have from the royal commission yeah exactly. is is the whole accountability regime and i think it's finally getting to its final level of maturity the other thing that i want to raise with with the you know far coming in and this landscape changing which it will is we've had recent discussion with members around attestations for APRA for risk controls and a few other pieces and we've had some quite in-depth discussion about well what makes a meaningful attestation what what gives your accountable person some assurance that these things have actually been undertaken and that they've given the oversight they should as an accountable person and I think that this gives you know this is a really interesting piece where as you say there have been periodic attestations but there were no controls implemented yeah. Right, and they certainly weren't effective. Yeah. So I think that this puts all accountable persons on notice to undertake the training you need to be able to assess whether those are in place and to ask the right questions because it, it's it's now going to be on your plate to ask the question. You don't have to do the work yourself, but you have to ask the question. And and the interesting thing from my perspective is the attestation was only once every two years when the, the Act requires it to be slightly more regular than that. Mm. And, yeah. and also, what was the um, the fund auditor doing? This is yeah. a question that yeah. you would have expected yeah. the fund auditor to it, do. It right? seems like all three lines yeah. have broken down, you know. Yeah. So a number of red flags for our members to walk away with, you know. Uh, there seems to be a lack of documentation about how you would escalate. The 
the breach reporting, the delay, you know, the the buy-in, the fact that you've got a junior member of staff bypassing compliance to go to the head of governance and the company secretary. And I really think that potentially a lack of understanding at board level how important this priority was, as opposed to thinking it's just an administration activity. Yeah, no, you, from my perspective, I think that the, the board did understand how important it was. But not, but they're busy people, and I know that mm. doesn't give them a, a, um, an out by any stretch of the imagination. But if something has been identified as being an important issue, you kind of think that people are going to be beavering away in the background resolving it. And you get it reported every month. And you get it reported. Well, it was not reported every month because it wasn't happening. But mm. in, the, in the COVID times and all the sorts of stresses and post the Royal Commission and so forth, I can imagine what the compliance reports looked like, as did the admin reports. But that's not a complete get-out-of-jail-free card. And, right. and it certainly comes down to the fact that you would have expected that at the very least the general counsel would have said, um, have it on their radar to say, what in the hell's happening? I mean, mm. an organisation such as Australian Super who cannot meet its CIS requirements is just astounding, absolutely astounding. And I think it's a very important um, issue as well for members to understand is that in the past, a lot of large entities were kind of, you know, um, not not taken on, primarily because um, ASIC knew that it couldn't, you know, back it up in the, in the cost of running litigation. And very few superannuation funds were in fact taken on. So if you're running a industry super fund, and you haven't taken appropriate actions under CIS, watch out. If mm. you're a smaller fund, you know, that's not that's done a merger recently, have a look. Make certain that, that none of your members, in fact, have dual accounts. In fact, it has to be a priority every time there is a merger. And APRA, as we know, is encouraging mergers to do an analysis of, of the um, members of each of those merging entities to ensure that there isn't multiple accounts. So that you've got one yeah. who's in Fund A, who's also in Fund B, they have to be flagged immediately. And, and it seems to me that some of these, these relatively easy functions, in fact, haven't been undertaken. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I think it's also, like I said, having enough qualified bodies to to throw at the work as well yeah. can become yeah. an issue. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you very, very, I mean, Kwame, do you think, you know, we should talk a little longer? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, I think you've really covered it um, quite comprehensively. I was just thinking, because I'd written an article on this, uh, I think a week or so ago, and there was a quote that is still stuck with me, which is uh, what Sarah Court said in response to when the review <laughs> came out which was, you know, it shouldn't take an ASIC review for super trustees to comply with the law, which yeah. I yeah. thought was... Yeah. And yeah. down to the, you know, a problem always arises when a good person does nothing. And mm. and I am certain within Australian Super there were a lot of good people. Yes. They didn't do anything. And and I, I'm going to be really interested to see what the consequences are. I am mm. certain it will be a multi-million dollar fine and it mm. may even go to, you know, um, other controls on the organisation, including recommendations as to board members. I, I would, yeah, I 
would encourage that view because this is a very critical part of the economy at the moment and having a lot of attention paid to it. Yeah. Um, people are, you know, with those costs, people are having funds go backwards just in fees and insurance premiums and that's not going to bode well for this country when they go to retire, yeah. the and, individual and the country. And more to the point, the last thing that you want to do is when you've got a number of people who are doing it hard is to have them hit doubly for fees and insurance policy. Yep, yep, that's right. Money has to be available to them within their superannuation policy. A for their we know that there's an underlying risk in this industry with a lack of engagement by the, the customers with the product. So the onus is unfortunately then on the trustee to act in their best interests. Yes, and, and the fact that there was nothing done I find it extraordinary. I mean, even if they'd gone to the trouble of identifying all of the members saying this is the amount of money and we'll write out to them, they didn't even do that. I find that extraordinary. But anyway, let's hope that member, the ACI members have taken this on board. I mean, as always, Naomi and I are open for discussion should anybody want to have a chat with us. Mm. We, we do not provide legal advice, of course, but we're happy to have a chat from a, a business. But I, I certainly think there's a whole lot of things for our members to walk away and have a little bit yeah. of a look at in their organisation and make sure that those projects were completed because yes. there's, there's ample evidence that they get to a certain point and then there's regulatory change or something else happens and you divert interest and resources and the project doesn't get 100% complete, it's pretty close, and you've got this sleeper risk. And and the priority has to be on members whose, whose um, organisations have merged. So yes. if you've merged, get onto it now. Make certain yeah. that was part of the project plan and has been adequately implemented. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, Kwame, we kept talking. You'll have to edit out that middle bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. Sorry. Perfect. Sorry. Um, thank you very much. Naomi and Carol uh, for having this discussion and hopefully have you on the podcast again soon. This podcast has been a production of the Australian Compliance Institute and the music was done by Rob Neary.